You're listening to Everyday Saints, a podcast from the Melbourne Anglican. I'm your host, Maya Pilbrow. Our aim is to feature the stories of people from different backgrounds in Melbourne and beyond. These stories might make us laugh, they might make us cry, but our hope is that hearing a diverse range of stories will bring us closer together and better equip us to care for one another. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy. My guest today is Alexandra Amarides, an opera singer who grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church and now attends St. John's East Malvern, where they are a choral scholar. Alexandra is trans and non-binary and uses they-them pronouns. We spoke about worship music, religious traditions, gender, and what it means to be welcomed into spiritual spaces. A content warning before we get started, this episode contains discussions of mental health and gender dysphoria. If you are affected by the content of this episode and need to talk to someone, call Lifeline on 131114. And something else to note, this episode was recorded in the wild. And by that, I mean a somewhat noisy cafe in inner city Melbourne with the occasional sounds of construction in the background. Alexandra, welcome to Everyday Saints. Tell us a bit about your faith background. I grew up Greek Orthodox, and I predominantly went to church with my grandparents when I visited them on Sundays, and then annually we would do Easter, that's our biggest holiday, so those were my church experiences, going to Sunday school and um, hanging around with the other kids, and then the big Easter celebrations, which was like a whole week and involved a lot of cultural things as well. Um, For me, my earliest memories of church were that, you know, all the women sat on one side and all the men sat on the other side. And I would always go with my brother, who was closest in age to me. And what what used to make me a bit sad was that the boys used to go into the back of the church behind um, the front wall and only men were allowed in the vestry back there. So I used to want to go with him, of course. But um, I was, was the first thing I sort of was told and knew that I had to sit up out front with everyone but um I don't know I loved the chanting and I loved taking communion it was always like a fortified wine port and so it's one of my most delicious early memories but um yeah it was really gendered right from the start how old were you when you started realizing hey the boys are getting treated really different from the girls I'm I was in primary school definitely I would have been under 10 um I had a lot of nice memories of going to church with my grandparents when I was younger. And of course, I, you know, hated it because I had to wake up really early and we weren't allowed to have breakfast before going. And it took all morning. But it was always fun at the end because, you know, there were treats involved. Um, But I, it just was very commonplace that all of those things were understood and not really, not really an issue, sort of very much how things are done. Um, So... It, it never initially even bothered me. It was just sort of a question of, oh, I'm noticing this. And it was really separate in that way. And I guess I just thought, that's what we do here. Um, I also noticed a lot that, so for me, I'm such a musical person. Uh, the chanting in church was always really beautiful. Um, the Byzantine and um, chanting, and I always loved it. But in my church, there were only ever men doing the chanting. And that made me feel sad because that's how I would have wanted to be involved. Um, and thankfully, that's not a that's not an Orthodox tradition. There are women that chant in the Orthodox church and they always have been, which was very exciting for me to find out. But um, it's these aspects of the, the religion and the culture that I felt like I wanted to be a part of that I noticed were often delegated to boys. 
Was this something that was talked about? Did you just have to accept that this was the way things were? It was definitely talked about um, because I would ask, I would say, oh, you know why, but no one was ever able to offer anything more than um, it's just what it's just what's done. Like the boys do that and the women don't. The women just sit out here or do other things. I'm sure that if I had the wherewithal to ask a why, it's not something that people had reasons for because generationally when things just become really ingrained in tradition, people are very happy to go along with it because it makes them feel close to their culture, especially for, you know, immigrants to Australia. Um, there's a sense of pride and, um, and familiarity with holding on tightly to what they remember from living in Greece, and um, religion is a huge part of that. Was it ever an issue for you, pushing back against these traditional gender roles as a kid? To be honest, no. Um, not in my experience. Um, no one was ever frustrated with me for thinking or asking. I'm sure that it's something that young men, women and other young people have always just grown up asking. It's just that no one was able to afford more of an explanation than it's just what we do. So in a way, it was devoid of feeling very, I don't know, nasty in nature. It just felt like, at worst, oh, that's a bit unfair or, oh, I just wish that I could do that or I wish that it was the other way around. It sounds like you figured out the gender binary pretty quickly. Men on one side, women on the other. When did you start to realize that you didn't fit in either category? In hindsight, I always rejected the binary because I felt like even though I was being socially raised as a young Greek, a good Greek girl, as they say, I, it made me quite angry purely because I didn't think I was a girl. I didn't think I deserved to experience what I was being told was my experience to have. And I wouldn't have been able to quantify it in that way at that age. But I always used to get furious and think I shouldn't be asked to do X, Y, and Z, or I notice my brothers aren't being asked to do X, Y, and Z. And it ultimately came down to the fact that I just didn't think that that's because I was meant for the ro the roles that we had ascribed um, women in the Greek community or in the Orthodox community. Um, and I know that that, fo that follows in a lot of different um, Anglican and Anglo-Saxon culture as well, but I was coming from that European place and um, it felt very conservative and very constricted. Um, I used to, it, only now do I look back and think, you know, the reason why I was so cross was because I, I felt the entitlement of a male, to be honest, and I felt like I didn't deserve the treatment that I was being given. And that was also my first, you know, introduction to just being a feminist and thinking no one should be, should be treated or reduced to the role that they are in, whether or not they identify as a woman, of course, but I felt like it was a particular injustice for me because I suppose there was a part of me that always knew I wasn't supposed to be seen that way. What I noticed was that the tasks that the girls were asked to be a part of were really different to that of what the boys were asked to be a part of in that I felt like the boys weren't the first point of call to come and do a bunch of chores. I always felt like, especially around 
festivals or special occasions, the girls always had to be up at the crack of dawn, helping clean the house and helping prepare food from very early. And I felt as though all my brothers had to do were go outside and stand with my dad or with my uncles and grandparents at the spit, and they just had to do the meat. Or worst case scenario, they might be asked to mow the lawn. But they were always outside, and they always seemed to have less to do. But it was this idea that, you know, there are these outside chores, there are these inside chores, and I always felt like the inside chores were far more laborious, so I, I hated doing them. I always thought, oh, it's, it's this again, and why am I being asked? And to be honest, I, I did have brothers that helped out quite a lot with the cooking and the cleaning, but um, it just wasn't necessarily asked of them, and I had to call out my family at one point, and I thought, you know, oh, if I had a... I had different genitalia, let's say, I wouldn't be asked to do all this. And then my mum made a real point of saying to my brothers, you know, you should get up and pull your weight. But I was just really disappointed with it all. And in church, I noticed that, you know, the boys were able to do the, the activities, if you will, anything fun. They got to put on the robes and they got to go into the vestry, as we had discussed. They got to do the chanting and they got to carry, they got to be the crucifer and also, you know, swing the incense. And a really big one that I discovered later in life was at a funeral, the, the pallbearers were always men. And that initially wasn't something that bothered me because I was like, I don't want to carry heavy things. That's fine. You got this all the way. But when it became my relatives, I really felt like I would have wanted to to be at the coffin and carry it, but I just don't think I ever would have been afforded the opportunity to do so because it wasn't really done. It was always offered to the men of the family. And um, that's really heartbreaking. <laughs> I think a lot of people can probably relate to finding certain gender roles arbitrary or stifling, but what you're describing is more of the process of figuring out that you were trans and non-binary. When exactly did you realize that about yourself? I, it took me a long, long time. It wasn't until I was well into university and I was, um, su my mental health was really suffering. I had to discover long before my gender identity that I was very neurodivergent and go on a path to look after my mental well-being. I think that my gender journey and identity was interlinked with that and how unhappy I was. But it wasn't until I was able to get a firm grasp of my own mental well-being that I began, that I had the freedom to explore those parts of myself. And also being at university introduced me to people that were different to, you know, that, that I had grown up with. And there was a lecturer at university who was non-binary and it was the first person I had ever met or knew of that didn't identify as either a man or a woman. They went by they, them pronouns. And, um, and even visually, when people would look at them, they would think, I don't see either or. And um, everyone just knew that they, probably for many years, were openly non-binary. And that was the first time I had ever learned that that was an option that that was something people could do. Um, 
and that blew my mind. I think that probably planted the seed of hope that was like, I wasn't aware that there were alternate ways of living life and I didn't realize that that was something I could pick. I always thought that my hands were tied with what I had. For me, it was often a question of um, whether I was trans. I found that um, any time I was deeply unhappy, I would announce that I felt like a man. And um, it was always a surprise to me. And I, I always thought, I never, I don't know where that came from. That, that's really wild and crazy. But I had to get to a really desperate point, mentally and emotionally, for that sort of revelation to have even happened, which is a terrible shame. And some people have a far worse time and end up, you know, hurt or unfortunately we lose them. So I'm privileged to have been able to discover it before any real issues befell me. Um, but it was always, you know, am I trans? Is it a full transition? I also had to learn about the idea of the binary being just constructed and that there's a lot of room um, for a lot of different kinds of expression, a lot of different gender identities, and then presentations of that also. Hindsight being so powerful, when I look back, I was always, my favorite celebrities were always androgynous, and I always was most interested and enamored by you know, Grace Jones and David Bowie and Tilda Swinton and people that fit these, these in a way, non-binary spaces where they were able to blend or be a lovely mix of both things or where they showed the just how grey everything can be, you know, the, the, the femininity in masculinity and the masculinity in femininity. So a lot of clues were, were dropped um, along the way, but it wasn't until I sort of thought, I think this is for me, and it took a lot of years of coming out. It was a very long process. First, you know, I came out to myself, cut all my hair, um, and slowly began to feel more like me. Um, I sort of knew what I felt for a while, but it took a while to quantify it. And I experimented with a few different things. I started by saying, oh, you know, I feel fluid. You know, some days I feel more like a man, some days I feel more like a woman. And I'm very happy where I've arrived. I'm very aware that I'm trans. I'm a trans person. However, I'm very, very comfortable identifying as non-binary because to be honest, if I was born a man, as I believe I deserved to have been, I still would have been incredibly feminine. I love those elements of myself. And I have enjoyed a lot of the aspects of growing up, being conditioned and socialized as a woman. And I don't identify with a lot of aspects of manhood that we have ascribed today in our society also. So I have arrived in this happy place where I, I may be trans, but I am happily non-binary because part of transness is realizing you can find happiness in the body that you have. It isn't for everybody and um, different levels of transitioning are for people. Um, but we're learning to just become a lot happier with the, the diversity, even in the trans community. It isn't all a pressure of passing and um, fitting into a binary. Now a lot of people are just existing. 
And that's a beautiful thing. Like a lot of people, it sounds like you grew up attending church pretty regularly, but started to step back a bit when you were a teenager. Yes and no. Um, traditionally, I would celebrate Easter with my grandparents and on both sides of my family. So there would always be times throughout the year where we would attend with them or say if there was a family occasion, um, a wedding or a christening or a funeral, those were always tied up in going to church. But as we got older and went into high school, it just became less easy for us to necessarily go and spend long periods with them or, to be honest, I think that, rather sadly, the experience of having to go to church every weekend maybe coloured my opinion of going and staying with my grandparents because I thought, oh, you know, we aren't able to just go and spend time with our grandparents. We have to go to church on a Sunday, which would take up the whole first half of the day. And I think that I definitely had points growing up where I lamented that because church can be boring sometimes when you're a young person and the language is ancient Greek and you don't understand any of it. Um, but yes, growing up, uh, less and less, I, I, I wanted to go less and less. And then, you know, my grandparents got sick and slowly started to pass and there were times where I wanted to, to do the church experience for myself. But I would ha I have to admit, it was mainly around Easter time that I was most passionate about, about going to church because those traditions were just that much more important in the, in the year. You liked the chanting, the music, the ritual, but you stopped actively going to church for a while. What drew you back in? I was always a performer, and I think I always noticed that. Um, and music was just an integral part of that because it's so human. We all just make our noise and make music. And it was nice, that actually, that music was so involved in church. I never would have put the two of those together for a while. But, um, you know, my, my parents put me into music theatre growing up. They thought I needed you know, a creative sort of outlet. And so I knew quite young that I loved to perform and that I loved to sing. And um, I didn't really start my singing training until properly at university. Um, but it was a surprise to me to find out and to study just how much music was integral with religion and the church experience and it was also very I was very proud to learn that you know some of the earliest examples of that were you know in orthodoxy and um and the chanting like that is such a simple basis for a lot of western classical music as we know it today um so I sort of got reacquainted with the the religious aspect of music because that's how for many many centuries and for many different cultures we come to worship through music. You've got this appreciation for these long-standing classical music traditions, but it took you a while to figure out how much you loved opera, right? My first introduction to any sort of music other than the chanting in church, which I'm sure I wouldn't have considered a genre, I just thought that's church. Um, I did musicals and my, my mum loved musicals, so she always had CDs in the car. Um, I remember she had, you know, a Les Mis album and Mamma Mia and Wicked and um, I found a collection of albums that she had actually of all these musicals and she was a really avid theatre goer, and still is. So that's what I initially got into and I always gravitated towards jazz as well, um, stylistically, but also because those were the more contemporary 
sort of genres. Opera is not something I was introduced to until much later in life, and I never would have considered doing it myself. I never would have anticipated that opera would be a genre that I would become so passionate about and and do for myself. I was often told in high school, you should study classical. And I think I understood it as a compliment. Teachers would always suggest to singers with promise that they should train classically because I think that to them that meant you have an ability and a, a skill level that would make it not difficult for you, say, for someone else that might struggle with that sort of thing. Um, and I always said no to it. I pushed it away aggressively because as a young person, I never liked being told to do anything. Um, and I never liked to be told who I should be or what I should be. Um, and I'm sure that came from somewhere. Um, but I put it aside for very many years. It wasn't until university when I got into the conservatorium at Melbourne that I was that I had even heard opera, to be honest. You sing with the Australian Contemporary Opera, but you're also a choral scholar at St John's East Malvern. How did you get into choral singing? My first choral singing experience, other than school choir, which I know I, I just know I adored, um, when I was going into year 12, my, my older brother had graduated, the one that I always grew up with, went to church with, and he was looking for um, a choir to join because he missed out on school choir. And so my mum found an advert in the newspaper saying, oh, the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra Chorus are auditioning people. So to my older brother, she said, you should audition and go for it. And at the time, I saw that and I thought, oh, I'm going to audition and go for it. Um, and so I did and I got in and that was at the start of my final year at high school. So I spent the year opening up my eyes to the world of classical music and the orchestra and um, I got the best seats in the house, I thought. But it was actually choral singing to a higher level than I had ever, ever sang and I took to it so quickly. I always felt like I wasn't learning quickly enough for my taste and, um, you know, the MSO Chorus offered me an opportunity to put together some really difficult music at, and I was only 16 at the time and I just got this zest for it that I thought this is what I've been wanting to do and I can't wait also to be a soloist at the front of the stage and they all sounded like opera singers to me so it felt like the right direction. It wasn't until I was at university that at the time my, the conductor of the MSO Chorus moved to Trinity College to teach the choir there and at the, um, the Trinity Anglican Church that's there, which is a lovely space to sing, and um, he encouraged me to come along, and um, I did, and I just got into a different form. That was my first experience with the Anglican Church, and so I got into a different form of both choral singing and a different form of church, if you will. Your first Anglican service, and at Trinity, no less. What was that like? It was completely different to anything I had ever experienced. Um... So at Trinity College, the main thing the choir does is Evensong. And to this day, Evensong is my favourite sort of a, um, a service at, in the Anglican Church because it, it really was a celebration of a lot of the music where the choir got to showcase themselves. And um, 
What I love about it is that not only is the music sensational and there is some incredible music that has been written, but for me, as someone that has, you know, been raised religious and also has a love for music and musicianship, for me getting to combine the two was transcendent because I got to do what the composers initially intended, which is to worship through my singing, which is not something I had been allowed the opportunity to do. So being like the divine worship of, divine worship, I should say, is the beginning of all Western classical music because the way that we began to develop our modern music notation began in the church and in court as well because that was the that was what musicians were called and paid to do that was their first sort of, sort of commissioning and everything that was written for a very long time was for church or for um, the the religious calendar throughout the year for different festivals and and um, that's something I studied at university and I was starting to sing it practically so I got to learn about the different types of music that you sing throughout the calendar year um, with different services at Christmas and Easter and all the different festival saints and um, so I was really starting to get into it. There's enjoying the odd even song and then there's being a full member of a church choir. What did that journey look like? It happened quite organically yet again so my good choir mate who I sang with at Trinity College um, we met and we sang together for a few years there. Um, he got a job as the musical director at St. John's in East Malvern. And being the good friends that we are, I had graduated, so singing with the Trinity Choir wasn't really... It's something I had just grown out of. He suggested that I um, follow him. He said, I'm looking for singers. I'm looking for choral scholars in this parish. And at the time, there were only four choral scholars, I believe, at St. John's East Malvern. Um, we're very fortunate today to be able to boast eight, which is a massive, massive deal. Um, but, yeah, so he said, I need singers and I would ask you first. And so I followed him without, without even thinking and we've been very happy there for many years. So I joined at St. John's East Malvern in 2019, I believe. Or 2018. I think it was 2019. Yeah, um, and I, I sang for about four years there consistently. It was obviously difficult during the, um, the pandemic period, but it's amazing what people managed to continue to perform during that time from both a spiritual perspective and from a musical perspective. We really made it work. Um, I took a year off last year because um, I was doing quite a bit more performing and um, I just found that I missed it. I really missed it. I missed having my consistent sort of weekly routine of being able to do it and you know one can roll their eyes and say oh waking up early on a Sunday morning is or not going out on a Saturday night can be a bit of a commitment and it certainly is but um having the consistency for me is hugely important for my mental health and my and my happiness and um it's such a family at the parish at St John's that I I was just called back yeah you talked before about your experiences in the Orthodox Church, where you were acutely aware of these strict roles for men and women. Since you came out, do you still attend Greek Orthodox services? Honestly, when I go to the Orthodox Church, I assume 
a female gender. And I don't do that for me. I, I think I do that for the people around me. I never know if it's the right time or whether or not people will understand or feel comfortable in that environment. So when I go to the Orthodox Church, I wear something I'm comfortable in. I wear something, you know, appropriate. But I assume that I will be misgendered, and I am. And I've learned to accept that there, those spaces might take a really long time to change, which is actually a real shame. In the Anglican Church, however, I, I slowly came out. I spent a few years, you know, just being regarded as, you know, Alexandra, you know, who is a woman in a lot of people's eyes. But um, it took a few years for, for me to get, gain the courage at St. John's to say, you know, these are the pronouns that I use and I would like to go by those pronouns. And um, it's a really warm and loving parish and a lot of mistakes are made, but I've had people really try and I've had people really surprise me at the amount that they are correcting themselves and learning and also, you know, keeping each other accountable and um, it, it makes me feel very hopeful for a future. So it's a, it's a lovely parish. Um, it's very accepting and there's no homophobia or transphobia, but I do think that without speaking out of turn, I think I might be the only openly gender diverse person in this parish currently at least openly, um, I can't speak for other people. And I didn't realize how important that was until after my year's sabbatical, I came back and um, St. John's Parish is also, um, it's also linked with um, St. Agnes in Glen Huntley, um, the smaller sister church, if we will. Um, and we also go and sing there throughout the month. And I said hello to a woman that I hadn't spoken to for a while. And she said, I'm so, so glad to see you back because we need more genders in the church. And that really, it kind of warmed my heart because I thought there's a really important place for, for people that don't live cisgendered or heteronormative lifestyles in the church. And that involves the teaching um, that we can all benefit from in terms of you know loving one another and um, being the kindest and the most understanding people we can and just learning to exist um, in a very divine way which is you know in a in a caring way in a loving way in a way where we all look out for one another um, so I've enjoyed being out it's it still takes time and people still get my pronouns wrong but um the fact that I've been able to do so and that people have really respected it is is so heartening. It's not something I ever thought was possible. And um, what a treat to know that there are, and there have always been parishes and communities that have been openly accepting of lots of different things, of lifestyles, I should say, and people and kinds of people. You just touched on some of your own experiences being misgendered. What does it mean for someone to not affirm your gender like that? I've gone with a lot of different analogies. You know, whenever I, whenever I talk to people, I try to suggest a lot of different versions of what the feeling might be for them. And they can all be rather reductive. You know, you think, oh, say, imagine if 
someone mistook you for a Collingwood supporter when you're not a Collingwood supporter or imagine someone mistook you for, you know, being from Ormond College instead of from Trinity College and there are lots of different very, 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 very um, trivial comparisons that obviously pale in comparison to being misgendered. But it's so interesting that without the experience of living in a body that doesn't reflect who you are, cisgendered people, I found, are not incapable of understanding, but genuinely they are beginning from a, a, a place where they have no concept that works for them. So you start from the start and you think, all right, you know, you are comfortable with in yourself, in your physical form, in what the world has told you you should look and feel like, and that really works for you. But if you woke up one day and you were still the same person that you are, but you were in someone else's body, who you are on the inside, your, your mind remaining the same as you were yesterday, you wouldn't just adjust how you feel. You wouldn't think, oh, well, I suppose I was a man yesterday, but this morning I've woken up a woman, so now I, look, I feel like a woman. That isn't how it works. Um, and without going into a lot of the science behind it, because that is sometimes more complicated than, you know, just talking to lay, lay people. But to say, behind our eyes, we are a person that exists separate from this mortal coil, not to get too religious uh, with it, but, um, and that can look a lot of different ways. And historically, it always has. And biblically, it also has. And um, I think that we've just limited ourselves or we've become too reliant on the idea of there being one or two things, whereas the world is just far more complex than that. And it is in the animal world and in the natural world and all around us, the binaries don't exist. So it's silly to sort of assume that we have them as humans. Um, how to explain it perhaps a bit further is to say that you're constantly at odds with the world around you. And it's as though, you know, you're in a coma and you're, you're screaming out inside, but you just can't make any noise. And that's a deeply distressing feeling. Um, and it's upsetting and, yeah, say you're speaking a different language to everyone else and, and that's the stuff of nightmares, you know, where you, you're trying to make noise but no sound comes out. I'm sure we've all had a dream like that and that's the closest thing I can think of. It's, it's very, very um, mortifying. It's a mortifying feeling and um, people always think, oh, well, I, I don't mean any offence or how can I possibly know that? And it all just comes back to the idea that we, we assume far too much. And um, we need to learn to not make presumptions about people before we, before we meet them or before we speak to them. And too much of how we walk about the world involves making those snap judgments about people. And um, I don't think anyone's benefiting from it. I think that we could benefit from allowing people to come to us, come as you are, 
as we say and sing in the church. And, um, and be ready with open arms to accept what it is that they bring to you, not what you are ascribing to them. Both outside of the church and within it, there's a tendency to talk about the LGBTQ plus community as a recent phenomenon, something newfangled and alien. What's your take on this? I was fortunate enough earlier this year to be a part of a fringe festival show called um, Jesus Queen of Heaven. Um, and it was about a transgender Jesus. And there were retellings of stories from the Bible very much as they are, and noticing just how queer a lot of those stories actually are and always really have been. Um, it's interesting when we look into divinity across a lot of different faiths um, that the existence of queer and gender non-conforming people have always been and will always be. So without going into a huge conversation of why it is that we've decided and enforced the idea that they don't exist, we have so much proof and so many examples of how trans and queer people have always walked among us. Um, and so to the people that to the people that are very gatekeepy of religion and faith that create a hostile environment or that even go so far as to reject or expel um, diverse individuals from their communities, um, I must say, I don't think you're doing religion right because so much of what religion should be or claims to be has no place for intolerance. And it's as simple as that. It's been written and said many, many times. But we all continue to decide throughout history, and it is a decision as many factions of Christianity have continued to be redefined and reiterated. We make choices about what it is and who it is. We allow, and I actually think that that involves a great deal of hubris, to allow people into your church or to decide who has the power of worshipping beside you. I think that that is divine only, and I don't think any human has the right to make that call. And that might be a big statement for me to say, but I do think somewhat that um, I think that we behave a little bit too much like we're gods ourselves. And... Um, we always say, you know, to, to err is human or, you know, only, only God or an idea of God can be perfect. However, we are afforded many, many opportunities to not be um, intolerant and I think it's as easy as that. And truthfully, when we have so many examples of queer and gender diverse people, even in the Bible... There are eunuchs all throughout the Bible. There are many, many examples of people that do not fit the gender binary or um, roles of expression in the Bible. And that when people think of reasons why there's something unnatural or, or you know, unholy about 
people whose sexuality or gender identity differ to their own, I think that maybe they haven't read the Bible. <laughs> Sometimes I genuinely wonder that. I, I wonder if they've read it and if they've read the same book that we've all read. And I know that that in itself can be difficult because there are lots of translations and lots of different editions and iterations. But um, I, I don't think it's as complicated as it's become. And I really hope that um, I do like to say, which is rather cheeky of me, but when, whenever I come across very intolerant or regressive factions of um, any form of Christianity, I always say, you know, I'm so sad the devil has taken up home in your heart. And I, and I can't wait for you. I'll pray for you. I will pray for you to find the light because clearly, you know, and it's amazing how just using that terminology and rhetoric can throw them the idea that maybe what they're thinking isn't actually the way of the Lord or because whether or not I think of myself as being massively religious, people that feel that way, that's the language that speaks to them. So I try to infer that perhaps what they're thinking isn't the most divine and um, watch them squirm. <laughs> I want to thank Alexandra for taking the time to talk with me. If you're interested in hearing Alexandra sing, check out the Australian Contemporary Opera. You can usually also find them singing at St. John's East Malvern on a Sunday morning, but they're currently in Europe after receiving a full scholarship to study at the acclaimed Saluzzo Opera Academy in Italy. Congratulations, Alexandra. This episode of Everyday Saints has been hosted and edited by me, Maya Pilbrow, with help from Elspeth Kernebone, Michelle Harris, and Janan Taylor. If you have a suggestion for our podcasts, please email editor at melbourneanglican.org.au.